0: Welcome everyone to this podcast. My name is Sterling Darling, and I'm in Linklater's Washington DC office. And we're going to be talking about the Financial Action Task Force's gray listing of South Africa. I'm joined today by Priyesh Daya and Dame Alison Saunders. And, and today we'll be discussing both the, the gray listing itself of South Africa, what it means in general, but also what it means for, for companies and business in South Africa. Before we start off though, let me let, me inter- let my colleagues introduce themselves. Um, Priyash, do you wanna go first?
1: Thanks, Stirling. I'm Priyash Daya. I'm the head of Weber-Wenzel's Dispute Resolution Team and I'm based in Johannesburg, South Africa, where I can focus on corporate and commercial litigation. Great, thanks Priyash. And Alison?
2: Hi, I'm Alison Saunders. I'm a partner in the investigations team with Linklaters and I'm based in London.
1: And Alison, can you tell us a bit about your career before joining Linklaters?
2: Uh, I can. Um, It's not so much um, a sort of former life as a continuation on a theme, I think, But, but Basically, I spent most of my career as a public prosecutor in England, um, having uh, my last appointment before joining Linklaters five years ago um, now, was as the head of the Crown Prosecution Service and the Director of Public Prosecutions for England and Wales, so the most senior prosecutor in England and Wales. But now, at Linklaters, where I've been for the last five years, as I said, I provide clients with strategic and operational guidance on criminal investigations, business crime, fraud. As well as sanctions and crisis management,
1: wow, that sounds phenomenal. We definitely need more senior prosecutors <laughs> that better. but um, Sterling, you're based in the United States. Can you tell us a bit about your practice
0: yes so i'm a, I'm a counsel at our washington d c office and i focus um I focus on u s compliance issues, also a lot of other regulatory matters but on economic sanctions on things like money laundering, and so today's today's topic is particularly interesting to me. Um, but uh, I guess with with the introductions over with, why don't we um why don't we kick off and and start with what what exactly the the gray list is? Well, it might be.
2: Um, useful first of all to talk about FATFA, which is the acronym that we'll use throughout this um, podcast. And that stands for the Financial Action Task Force, which is a global money laundering and terrorist financing watchdog. So, and FATFA is an international organization that has a number of other international bodies as part of it, including um, the Eastern and Southern Africa African money anti-money laundering group. So um, as is the Money, International Monetary Fund is also a member of FATFA. So FATF has set 40 internationally agreed standards for combating money laundering and the financing of terrorism and it periodically goes round and reviews countries against those standards to see how they're doing and measures them up against those standards. So there are more than 20, 200, sorry. 200 countries and jurisdictions that have committed to implementing these standards, including South Africa. So, and of course, there has been um, this recent review, which is what we're talking about, and because of the assessment by FATF of the standards they have put against South Africa, they have put South Africa on the grey list that's
0: that's very useful helpful helpful background allison um priesh do you want to tell us a little bit about how south africa ended up on the gray list what what um what they had, had done done to to merit that
1: well as allison points out we failed that review but let me perhaps give you some more detail south africa did poor, poorly in its 2021 mutual evaluation by the task force you know, when many institutions. Uh, especially our law enforcement agencies were at their weakest following a uh, following what we call state capture in South Africa. Just very briefly, state capture is systematic corruption where private interests influence states' decisions. And we had a commission of inquiry which effectively showed that our state institutions had been weakened, particularly by private interests, and in particular one family, which we'll mention down the line. But, but be that as it may, Um, insofar as compliance is concerned, you know, whilst no country is really fully compliant, South Africa was deemed to have too many weaknesses in its legal framework. We were put under one year's observation period uh, in 2021, October 2021, giving the country time to address recommended actions. South Africa made significant progress during that observation period by passing two major pieces of legislation and also by trying to then strengthen some of its key institutions. The task force recognised the significant and positive progress that was made uh, since 2019. However, uh, in you know there were eight of these recommended actions where there were deficiencies, and so unfortunately we were then graylisted during February 2023 as a result of the recommended actions that we could not we did not comply with. Okay,
0: and and Alison, why is a country graylisted if? you know, in, in this case in February, if as Priyash was explaining, um they were making progress.
2: Um well they may be making progress, but what the grey list status means is that a country is under increased monitoring and is actively working with FATFA as well to make sure that it can comply with the standards that we talked about earlier, which FATFA sets. So, where FATFA places um, a jurisdiction under increased monitoring, it means that that country, so in this case, South Africa, has committed to resolve the deficiencies identified within an agreed timescale and will be monitored whilst doing so. And of course, nobody wants to go on to the next step, which is a blacklist. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it's obviously in South Africa's interest to make sure that it um, moves off the gray list, that it works with FATFA, and that it can show that progress is being made. So, um, so it will want to get off the gray list as quickly as it can.
0: Okay. And, and, and Priyash, are there are there specific steps that South Africa needs to take now to get off the gray list?
1: Well, I think we're comforted by the fact that one of our neighbouring countries, namely Mauritius, was also put on this list, uh, you know, during uh, 2019 and got off the list in a record 18 months. So that gives us some hope, if I can start off with. But but so far as meeting eight standards, the standards that that Alison mentions are concerned, or these strategic deficiencies which have been identified, you know, we have been given until uh, the end of January 2025. However, the South African government hopes to address them sooner, possibly in 2024. Just very briefly, what what South Africa needs to do is to demonstrate a sustained increase in outbound mutual legal assistance requests that help facilitate money laundering, terrorism financing investigations, and obviously enforcement and and confiscation of different types of assets. Uh, South Africa needs to improve its risk-based supervision of what we call designated non-financial businesses, for example, um, casinos, lawyers, or attorney, the attorney's profession, uh, amongst some of these uh, designated, not designated non-financial businesses, we need to demonstrate that all anti-money laundering and you know, um, counter-financing of terrorism supervisors apply effective proportionate and effective sanctions for non-compliance. So in a nutshell, there needs to be improved supervision or risk-based supervision. We need to ensure that competent authorities have access to accurate and up-to-date beneficial ownership information on legal persons. Um, We need to demonstrate a sustained increase in law enforcement agencies' requests for financial intelligence. Uh, We also need to uh, demonstrate an increase in investigations and prosecutions of serious and complex money laundering uh, and terrorist financing activities. We need to also enhance identification, seizure and confiscation of proceeds. Uh, as a result of these offenses. So in a nutshell, these are some of the steps. We need to implement this wonderful legislation that I just spoke about that was passed prior prior to us being put on this gray list.
0: Okay. And I and I know you said there's there's some hope of coming off the list quickly. Does does that mean there's progress that's already being made on those eight steps?
1: Well I, I'm I'm happy to say absolutely. Uh, the the two pieces of legislation that were introduced, as I mentioned, Uh, were signed off in December 2023 that deal particularly with money laundering and the combating of terrorism financing. And, and and, you know, these laws will strengthen or seek to hope to strengthen rather the fight against corruption, fraud, and terrorism, and also to assist South Africa in meeting international standards on money laundering and and terrorism financing. Our National Treasury is also working to strengthen and expand anti-money laundering and combating terror finance systems in the financial sector and to minimize new and emerging risks such as cryptocurrency-related risks. So in a nutshell, yes, we are seeing things happen.
0: Okay. The uh, the mention of cryptocurrency risk and economic sanctions risk, it's ah—it's uh, all hot, hot button issues for for investors, I know. And so I, I thought maybe we just pause for a minute. And Alison, do you wanna talk about a little bit about what the gray listing of, of South Africa means from, from an investment perspective in the region?
2: Yes, and it's um. I mean, it's interesting, Sterling, because you know it could be really important. Um, and it will certainly make companies stop and think. I think about um, investment. So, I mean, if you're talking about, there are, will be many companies that have either already invested or have significant business. Um, businesses in South Africa, if they are UK or European-based countries, then I think they'll be really concerned with money laundering regulations and and how they're going to be complied with both in South Africa and how that impacts on them from a domestic jurisdiction as well, because we know that certainly in the UK, things like money laundering, proceeds of crime has a sort of extraterritorial impact. Um, but they will also be mindful of an increased compliance cost, which will be associated with doing business in South Africa. Um, so, you know, companies will see that there perhaps might be more interest from regulators or investigators, so they've got to answer those queries, perhaps, potentially. Um, but equally, they will want to do their own um, enhanced due diligence around new business and existing businesses to make sure that they're conducting them um, sort of monitoring of transactions if they operate in the region. Um, you know, in reality, um, most companies may may already have been treating South African business as sort of potentially medium to high risk and therefore may have already been doing that sort of compliance work, um, but some may not. So, um, I think it's for companies to actually look at what they've been doing, ask questions. Um, They may also find that if they're in a joint venture, the partners are asking more questions, asking for more documents and policies, um, trying to possibly exercise um, any audit rights that they might have to sort of make sure that, you know, they can be satisfied. So, I think, you know, there is a, a sort of, implication for everyone here, if you've already been doing all this compliance well fine, if you haven't then I think there will be more and there may be more external interest both from partners but also from regulators and investigators Um, and it may cause some people to think twice about investing in South Africa if they were thinking about doing so. Um, which may mean that they still do it, but they 'll have done more compliance around it, but it may put some people off, so I think the sooner South Africa can get off the list and reassuring to hear what she's saying the progress has already been made um then the better
0: yep. and we're we 're certainly seeing the same thing with with u s investors there's there 's always been a focus on on bribery on sanctions um a m l issues of not just with South Africa but Globally, have become become more of a diligence focus, and it's in M and A transactions. It's in it's in financings. Um, what would have otherwise been routine, relatively diligence light financings are now going through enhanced diligence um, when it's when it's a country like South Africa. And so, um, so it is it is interesting to see that all those things are are true in the UK too. Um, Priesh, do you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what this has meant in practice for, for some of your clients? Not, not just on the, on this sort of diligence side that we've been talking about, but, but just more generally what you've seen as a result of the, the gray listing?
1: Yes, thanks, Sterling. I mean, look, I think it comes down to, as, we, as I mentioned at the beginning, we've got this wonderful omnibus legislation, as we call it now. We've got our national treasury that is seeking to you know, and uh, to, to, to bolster our key institutions, you know, there's more financing that has gone into our pr- prosecuting authorities is beefing up as such of investigation capability. So what I'm seeing on the ground at this point is there's a lot of activity from our investigating and prosecuting authority. I'll just give you some examples to start off with, perhaps. You know, we saw recently in January that the NPA succeeded in, um, in convicting a former Impala Platinum Limited, that's one of the listed mining companies, a senior accountant for fraud and money laundering. Uh, We've seen also recently an ESCOM employee, that's our electricity commission, a senior employee being arrested uh, for fraud and corruption. Uh, We also recently had a politician uh, who was arrested for money laundering after he was caught running a loan shark business. What I think was really interesting for me over the last two weeks was that the Financial Intelligence Center, that's run under the auspice of the Ministry of Finance, you know, published a directive uh, that's in effect, that has resulted in a compulsory screening of all employees. Um, and, and this directive applies to law firms, estate agents, other accountable institutions operating in the country. So these institutions now have to vet all their employees for competence and integrity as a part of their due diligence process. And you know, if they if they don't, they risk a sanction or for, uh, of a fine, which which could be up to about 50 million South African rand. So so these are critical implementation steps that we're seeing. You know, the we're seeing the NPA now finally has teeth, and we're seeing that the FIC um, has issued these directives, as I just mentioned, which which now are hard hitting. And I think, as Alison mentioned, you know, it, it's going to it just it means more enhanced compliance. Uh, to try and prevent money laundering and, and uh, terrorist financing.
0: Okay. And and Alison, have have you seen other countries that are working to improve their their AML compliance go through similar steps? Are they are they being equally aggressive in in the improvements that that they're they're trying to make?
2: Yes, I mean we you see it all the time. So I mean we we dealt with a case sort of um, eighteen months or so ago, which was in the Caribbean where. They've been threatened with blacklisting and there was sort of quite quite a lot of knee-jerk reaction from the authorities and investigators, um, which we saw action there. But a fascinating example um, perhaps is um, in the UAE, um, where they have um, given a high level political commitment in February last year to work with FATFA and the Middle East and North Africa Financial Action Task Force in order to strengthen the effectiveness of the UAE AML and CFT, so um, counter-terrorism financing. Um, And it's demonstrated significant progress and they've done that by um, demonstrating a sort of increase in outbound MLA requests to facilitate investigations and also showing greater use of financial intelligence to pursue high-risk money laundering threats and combating UN sanctions evasions. Um, so that's been, you know, lots of action going on in the UAE, but where the where the sort of fascinating example sort of extends um, into the South African jurisdiction is that um, in 2022, um, the Guptas, who I think are probably well known to most people listening, were arrested in the UAE, accused of money laundering um relating to state funds using their connections, it's alleged, with ex-president Zuma. Um, and um they had been it was alleged that they'd used existing local money laundering networks to transfer more than 8.8 billion Rands to Hong Kong. So Um, So they were arrested in 2022, and in April 2023, um, the UAE rejected South Africa's extradition request of the Gupta brothers. And one of the reasons that the Dubai court gave for this, um, for rejecting the South African extradition request, was that money laundering was also a crime in the UAE. And so the UAE could prosecute the Gupta brothers, all Mm -hmm. showing FATFA and the world how how, you know, they are sort of getting to grips with this and doing it. Um, so, of course, um, you know, officials have sort of been debating this um, because South Africa wants the Guptas back. And one of the thing, one points which they may well exploit is saying that the UAE is basically only taking this prosecution in order to get off the grey list of FACFA. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, now that South Africa has also been put on the grey list, it's obviously keen to get the Guptas back and to prosecute them for combating money laundering. So this is something that might well get raised um, in, in the Washington in the coming days because there's I think a gathering of finance ministers for the IMF and the World Bank spring meetings Um, and there's also some expectation that the US government might put pressure on the UAE on South Africa's behalf um, to sort of make sure that the extradition takes place and they are prosecuted back in South Africa. So a really interesting example of another country that sort of you know worked done lots of things in order to get off the grey list but actually it's sort of potentially conflicting with South Africa's efforts as well hmm. so but um but a good example
0: yeah that's interesting I mean it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned governments cooperating with each other too so if it's if it's if it's short of extradition so if we're talking more about countries using their sort of MLAT treaties the mutual legal assistance treaties um do you want to do you want to say a little bit about that about how the the investigations dovetail across jurisdictions yeah,
2: and I think you know, whilst that was an example possibly of governments not cooperating <laughs> with each other, um, ordinarily what we are seeing is many more investigations where, um, or where governments cross jurisdictions are are cooperating with each other. They're sharing information. They're helping each other with mutual legal assistance requests. So I think for. Um, multinational um, corporates who are operating, whether it's in South South Africa, well in this case South Africa, who might be doing more in this area, what they really need to think about is if there's an investigation going on, is this going to be a sort of multi-jurisdictional one? Will other jurisdictions be interested, not just South Africa? Um, And if the company is thinking about self-reporting, you know, they, they've done their own investigation. They think there is something there that they should self-report because they want to get the benefits that we know exist from the DOJ guidance, from the SFO guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they all talk about if you sort of self-report, you will get a discount on your sentence. You may be eligible for deferred prosecution agreements, that sort of thing. So for companies, they need to think about, should we be self-reporting in this instance? But say they're based in South Africa, they've also got to think about, do we self-report to the South African authorities? But we're a UK company, or we've got a, a US nexus. Do we also self-report in those jurisdictions? Um, because we know the sort of you know we all talk about the long arm of the US law, but um, but we've seen the sort of UK law sort of develop in that respect too. So companies need to think about take advice really on do we self-report, but where do we do it, Or so where do we do it first, and how many other jurisdictions do we do it in? So I think that's quite a complex area where, you know, legal advice is obviously something that um corporates should be thinking about. Yeah. And
0: and Priyash, what what are the self-reporting obligations like in South Africa?
1: Well, Sterling, I mean, you know, there are certain pieces of legislation which which make it obligatory to report. I'll just give you some examples. I mean, um Alison mentioned the um, FCPA and the UK Bribery Act. Uh, in south africa we have the equivalent which is the prevention and combating of corrupt activities act uh, or PRICA as we love to call it uh, section 34 makes it quite clear that there's a duty on persons in positions of authority to report any offenses relating to corruption uh, theft fraud extortion or for- and forgery of more than and this is quite a low threshold a hundred thousand rand uh, which is what five thousand us dollars uh, to the directed for priority crimes now a failure to, to make this report will result in a criminal sanction as well. You know, it could lead to a fine or imprisonment of, of up to 10 years. Uh, the other piece of legislation I think that's that's quite critical for self-reporting purposes is the Financial Intelligence Center Act, uh, which again tries to combat money laundering and the financing of terrorism. In terms of section 29, businesses and employers, employees are required to report suspicious and unusual transactions. Including suspected unlawful transactions of terrorist financing, money laundering, evasion of tax, etc. There, there's a much heftier sanction of up to, uh, again, I think it's 15 uh, years imprisonment or up to a fine of up to uh, 100 million rand. So, so these are quite, um, uh, you know, they've got they've, they've got serious consequences attached uh, to them. It's just that the problem has been, as I mentioned earlier, it's the implementation. Um, the other one I can mention, I think, which is quite serious, is the Protection of Constitutional Democracy Act uh, against terrorist and related activities. Uh, you know, there, every person must report terrorism and related offences to the South African police, and a failure to do so could result in a life imprisonment sanction or fine of up to 100 million rand. So, you know, again, as, as mentioned, we we do have the legislation in place. It's simply the implementation or the enforcement of that legislation, which has been you know, where, where, where the deficiency has been. But what we're starting to see now, and, um, you know, as I mentioned, I think, uh, as mentioned by Alison, the Gupta case is quite an interesting one. I mean, you know, it's caused a diplomatic crisis of, of, of huge proportions at the moment between the UAE and South Africa at the moment as well, but, but an interesting one nonetheless.
0: And, and what does that mean in, in practical terms? I mean, what what have you been advising your clients if, if there are these serious consequences for not self-reporting?
1: Well, look, I mean, in light, especially as I mentioned, you know, there's been an increased activity by the National Prosecuting Authority and by other regulators. We are advising our clients to obviously adopt appropriate mitigative and responsive measures. You know, this includes conducting compliance and other due diligences, as well as assisting them to comply with their reporting obligations should it become necessary to do so. We have found recently we've been representing some of our clients, including the criminal courts, uh, you know, where... They have reported on corruption, but have now seen themselves as being cited as accused c- persons. And I'm, I'm talking about companies now, and I'm talking about listed companies, uh, simply because the NPA or the prosecuting authority wants to make examples of companies. So, so what this effectively means is that you know companies now need to ensure that they're not just ticking the boxes, but they seem to be ticking these boxes now. And you know, awareness and training are all important as well as, you know, in, in certain instances, ensuring that you go beyond just doing the reporting, but actually following up. Uh, you know, I've, I've found in my own experience, clients often tend to to want to ignore doing the positive reporting, or they, they never end up following up or they report to the wrong authority, which creates even further problems for them. Yeah.
0: It's, it's certainly becoming a complicated world out there for people. I uh, I want to, Thank Allison and, and Priyash. it's been it's been a fascinating discussion of the the gray listing, I think but both for what it means for South Africa itself, but just as, as helpful reminders about what what everyone should be thinking about with uh, with these money laundering developments when they're when they're looking at jurisdictions and uh, and also thank thank all of you for joining us. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Sterling. And as I mentioned earlier, we you know uh, as I said, uh, Allison, Uh, I think what our country really needs now are more senior prosecutors who can actually prosecute and (laughs) convict.
2: I'm on the next plane.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thank you.